In our study of the Old Testament this week, we look at Exodus chapters 14 through 17 and the exodus of the children of Israel from Egypt. But as we do, we take a close look at our own relationship with our prophetic leaders. I want to read something that Elder Gary E. Stevenson shared in the General Conference right after President Nelson was sustained in solemn assembly. He says this, As I sought guidance to know the topic the Lord would have me address today, my mind was directed to a recent conversation with the newly called First Presidency. In this discussion, one of the counselors shared words to this effect. I deeply hope that the membership of the church can comprehend the magnitude of what has taken place with the calling of our new prophet, President Russell M. Nelson, and the significance and sacredness of the solemn assembly that will take place at General Conference. Then Elder Stevenson continues, This caused me to reflect on experiences I have had. The first prophet I remember is President David O. McKay. I was 14 years old when he passed away. I remember a sense of loss that accompanied his passing, the tears in my mother's eyes, and the sorrow felt by our whole family. I remember how the words, please bless President David O. McKay, fell out of my lips so naturally in my prayers that if I wasn't mindful, even following his passing, I would find myself using some of those same words. I wondered if my heart and mind would transition to the same feeling and conviction for the prophet succeeding him. But almost like parents who love each of their children, I found a love for, connection with, and testimony of President Joseph Fielding Smith, who followed President McKay, and for each prophet thereafter, Harold B. Lee, Spencer W. Kimball, Ezra Taft Benson, Howard W. Hunter, Gordon B. Hinckley, Thomas S. Monson, and today, President Russell M. Nelson. I fully sustained each prophet with uplifted hand and uplifted heart. In our study this week, we take the opportunity to ponder our relationship with our prophetic leaders as we look forward or look back at General Conference and ask ourselves the question, what can I do to draw more power from my prophetic leaders? Welcome to the Scripture Study Project. We are your hosts, Krista and Zach Horton, and this is our podcast where we study Scripture with you. Our goal each week is to help you discover new or renewed excitement for God and His Word, invest your heart and personal life into your study, and connect with others as you teach and learn together. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode, Exodus 14 through 17. Jumping back into the story of Moses and the Exodus and the Israelites as they make their way from Egypt in the wake of the plagues and wind their way eventually towards the promised land. After a long time, right? After a long time. That we'll get to, but man, as I read this week, I just couldn't help but the Israelites, they're kind of the worst. (laughs) (laughs) They're really, what's the word, (laughs) complainy? Whiny. (laughs) Whiny. Reminds me of my, no, I shouldn't say that. I was going to say reminds me of my children, but that's (laughs) a bit. They won't listen. (laughs) They won't listen. (laughs) Well, we were pointing that out this morning in our morning study with them that um, there were some things that the Israelites say that remind us of some things that our kids say. Uh, it is it is interesting because uh, on the surface, this story is, it's like a lot of other scripture stories, it's told really briefly and on kind of a surface level. And at that level, it's really easy to be critical of the Israelites um, and to see or to not see or not understand what it is that they're saying or why they're doing it. But there are some complexities here and some things that I think uh, 
we can learn from, especially as we look a little bit closer at the story. Yeah, and isn't that how it is? I I've felt like that with a lot of these stories from the Old Testament is just, ooh, I wish we had some firsthand journal accounts from some of the these. Wall. Yeah, yeah, because you know there's definitely more complexity to it, but um, hopefully our study today will will help you not pretend we have journal sources from back then, even though we wish we did, but um, learn a little bit more from their experience and that, you know, there probably was a little more to their murmuring than we know about. So, Well, and we're recording this episode on Friday before General Conference, so you might be listening to it then. You also might be listening to it after General Conference. Regardless, General Conference is probably on the mind. And so this becomes a really powerful study as we look at our relationship with prophetic leaders. And the question we thought would be a meaningful one for us all to ponder this week is how can I draw more power from prophetic leadership? How can I get more out of general conference? Uh, how can I draw more from what prophets and apostles teach me in whether church periodicals or uh, passed down through my local meetings and, and lessons? Uh, what can I do to benefit more from uh, individuals the Lord has called to lead uh, the church and to teach truth? Unfortunately, our study, our block this week, doesn't give a whole lot of great examples for how to do that well. In fact, it's kind of a study in how to not do it well. We have a really, uh, real powerful manifestations of the Lord's power through Moses. And as you said, a really whiny group of Israelites. Or is it hard to read because it feels kind of like you do? Or not you specifically. I will use myself as the example. It's relatable. Yeah. Like we know that that is also what we experience because the reality of following and trusting in in a world where there's many opinions isn't always easy and yeah. it's never one-sided. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I think that was the experience we both had as we studied was on the surface this looks like a really cut and dried Israelites of the worst and how could they and then as we dive into it, we realize actually there's a lot here that resonates with what we go through and, and what we see just kind of culturally as members of the church. So what we're going to do is look at, there are five uh, stories that are repeated in pretty short succession in these chapters, 14 through 17. They all follow a really similar pattern. And whenever scriptural authors do this, it's often because they want you to see something highlighted by repetition. Uh, they didn't have exclamation points in Hebrew. And so the way they would emphasize specific points is by repeating them uh, and putting them in, in close proximity to each other. So the five miraculous stories. Uh, first of all, I guess this is kind of picking up from last week, but the, the parting of the Red Sea and the escape from Egypt, that's the first miraculous story. The second one is once they get out of Egypt, they don't have any water to drink, uh, and the water that they have available is bitter, and so Moses is able to, through the power of God, turn that bitter water to something drinkable. The third experience is the manna from heaven, where the Israelites are in want of food, and the Lord literally makes it rain bread from heaven. The fourth is, again, being without water, and Moses striking the rock and water coming out. And then the fifth one is the battle with the Amalekites, uh, where Israel prevails because of Moses's uh, ability to hold the rod of God up. And as we look at those five stories, they have some common features. First of all, 
in every single story, there is a problem that is affecting the people, and that problem causes them, at one point or another, to complain. The second feature of every single story is, of course, there is a miraculous intervention by the Lord through Moses. Um, and often it comes, this is the third feature of the stories, it often comes through the rod that Moses has or some other way in which the, the miracle is mediated. And maybe this is a fourth commonality with all of the stories, but we mentioned in a previous episode that uh, the, the plagues all had the point of showing the Egyptians that the Lord really is the Lord. It says it again in 14 verse 18, that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. But this week, there's another um, audience that the Lord is speaking to besides just the Egyptians, uh, and it's the Israelites themselves. This is chapter 16 verse 12. I have heard the murmuring of the children of Israel speak unto them, saying, At even ye shall eat flesh, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. And so just as with the, the plagues in Egypt, these miracles are intended to prove to Israel that God really is, that this Lord really is the ever-present one, that he's always with them. And so what we want to do is look at these five stories and pull from each story at least one lesson that might help us uh, draw more power from prophetic leadership, or one thing we need to stop doing that's barring us from drawing power from prophetic leadership. You know, as I'm looking for my next point, actually, Zach, I just came across a verse that I think actually sums up the whole episode. This is chapter 14, verse 14. The Lord will fight for you and you must be quiet. <laughs> I think that's probably what, <laughs> like, he's going to, you're going you're gonna to be fine. The Lord's going to take care of you. So please quit, quit murmuring. Uh -huh. Maybe that's what either the Lord wanted to say or what Moses was ready to say. But anyway, had to say that. Kind of a funny thing. Um, I don't know what your translation says. Hold your peace. Okay. That sounds a little better than little be quiet. <laughs> anyway, so the first miracle, as Zach mentioned already, that we see is the amazing miracle. What more can we say about this miracle that is referenced over and over again? Um, I even think, can I say it, it's one of the more famous miracles of, of all? One of the most famous <laughs> miracles ever, yeah. I guess we've had a few of those famous ones with the Ark and all the other things, but... Um, the parting of the Red Sea, scripture after scripture, the Book of Mormon is full of scriptures referring back to this miracle that had happened. And as I was reading about it, just the magnitude of being there and experiencing that type of a miracle just is overwhelming to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's kind of interesting to, to think about, like, if I were there, I think this thought actually crossed my mind as I was reading it. Like, if I were there, how could you ever doubt? How could you ever have any other opinion than I am going to follow Moses because he just led us to this place where God just showed us his power and Moses helped us get here. Um, and then you read on and as we've alluded to a little bit here is that they complain a lot still and their journey is not easy either they're on a very long journey um, after this miracle but the thought that came to my mind was just you know that's how I think it is for us today is even if we witness a miracle I think it's easy for us to say if I were to see this happen or if this were to be the way that it was 
given over the pulpit or if there were some proof behind something that like parting the Red Sea, if we we were to see the Red Sea parted, then we would follow this counsel or this prophet. Um, But as evidence, I think this is maybe why these stories are lined up the way they are, is a reminder to us that just even if you see a miracle, um, it doesn't mean that you're going to have perfect obedience or feel perfectly okay with the way things are going, or even that it's it's going to be just one-sided. Like, here's a miracle, and all the rest of your journey is going to be okay because we're human and we forget. Maybe you have seen a miracle, whether small or great, in your own life or those close to you, but it doesn't mean that your faith is perfect mm-hmm. or that you don't ever have reasons to complain or feel picked on, maybe even by God. Yeah. Well, this is repeated re- uh, countless times in scripture, right? The difference between a visual witness and a spiritual witness. Receiving a visual witness, even of the parting of the Red Sea or some other miraculous event, is not the same thing as receiving a spiritual witness. Alma will say this in the Book of Mormon. When he expresses his testimony, he will say, do you think I know these things of myself? And what you expect him to say is, no, I've seen an angel and the angel told me. But that's not what he says. He will say, these things have been confirmed to me by the Spirit of Truth, meaning I know what I know, not because I've seen it, but because I have felt it. And so the point that you're making is witnessing a miracle is not the, it doesn't make faith automatic. I still have to choose to believe. Um, I think what makes that interesting in our day, as I reflect on these miracles, um, miracles do not break, God does not break natural law. I think it was James E. Talmadge that taught that, that the Lord doesn't uh, do anything in contravention of natural law. All of his miracles obey laws. It has to because he's God, right? A miracle is simply a beneficial at wrought through divine power, which means that sometimes the miracles are not as surprising as they might seem from the outside. Um, a lot of the miracles that we might experience today could be possibly explained away if you choose not to believe that God is conducting them. But I always wonder in 3,000 years, if someone were to look back at our story, what would the things, what would be the things that they might think are miraculous? You know, they built how many temples and how few of years, or they translated the Book of Mormon into how many languages, or uh, they were able to broadcast church meetings that far at that day of age. In their primitive in their primitive, primitive yeah, their state. <laughs> so um, I think quite a few of the things that were miraculous anciently and miraculous in modern times could possibly be explained away. You have to do some, some juggling, some mental juggling, but they can be explained away, which means that just about any miracle in and of itself is not sufficient to provide us a basis for belief. We have to choose to believe, and there's really no way around that choice to believe that God is at the helm and to choose to trust those that he might send to teach us. Well, and to put scripture to this point um, in verse chapter 14, verse 30, that day the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant Moses. <gasps> It's the perfect end to the story. Like, it's all like, just, okay, just they there. did it and they all believe and they're going to go out and be happy. But we know that's not the end of the story. But I think that even sums up the point even more is yeah. that 
it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to look per- perfect even after that great miracle. President Eyring once said, great faith has a short shelf life. It's something we have to constantly choose and nourish in order to keep it alive. Uh, I looked at the two accounts that dealing with water, and there's a truth, I think, from them that helps us to draw power from uh, prophetic leaders. Uh, similarity in both places, whether it's the first story where the water is bitter or the second story where there is no water, here's a place where Moses comes, and uh, in the first story, it's with a, a log or a tree branch, and with the second story, it's with the rod of God. But in both places, uh, this this rod or this thing changes something, and that change benefits the Israelites. So in the first story, uh, it changes the bitter water into something that's drinkable. And in the second story, uh, Moses uses that rod to strike the rock, and water springs from the rock. And in both places, the Lord is very overt about what is happening. This is chapter 15, verse 26. If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and wilt do that which is right in his sight, and wilt give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. I am the God that changed that water. Even though it was the log that was thrown into the the water, and that was the mediation of the miracle, remember, I am the Lord that heals things. In chapter 17, I love the symbolism even more. Uh, This is verse 6. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it. It's interesting that the Lord uh, is specific that he will be standing on this rock as the rock is smitten. Two, I believe, symbolically indicate that what is happening is that he himself as God, is willing to put himself on the line and provide from his own broken stone, or to be symbolized, his broken body, will provide water. I don't think it's an accident that uh, he is the one that's uh, smitten and uh, in the narrative of the crucifixion that water comes from him uh, and that that blood or that water is what provides us the nourishment we need. Uh, Paul makes this connection in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he will say, the Lord is the rock that was smitten. What I draw from that is this, and I think this is so basic, but so overlooked. The role of prophets and apostles, the primary role that they have is to teach and testify of Jesus Christ. To prophesy means to, to teach and tell truth with a capital T to teach and testify of Christ. Their role is to bring people to Christ. I think a lot of times the criticism that is leveled at church leaders comes because we don't understand their primary role, which is to teach and testify and bear witness of Christ. Now that is not to say that that's all that they do. Uh, We are very, years ago, President Benson, who was then president of the Quorum of the Twelve, gave a talk at BYU called 14 Fundamentals of Following the Prophet. And in that, he was very clear that we don't limit prophets and apostles in their scope. Uh, They can be politically active. They can express opinions and beliefs. And we want that to happen. We want people of faith to express beliefs and opinions. Uh, They can give direction and policy and counsel and guidance. Uh, But it's helpful to remember that they're the, the... goal that they are aiming at is to teach and testify of Christ and to help his children, help God's children come to him. Uh, 
And for me, when we can remember that, that helps eliminate or mediate, mitigate a lot of the complaints that we might have or see in others. Well, I really like that. I think that has been a really helpful perspective for me to have um, through the years. Um, so we've heard about the grumblings of the water. Zach talked about the, the water. And now we're moving on to the miracle of the manna and the food. And I already used one of the words, actually. I just said grumbled. I gave away my point. But I think for me, as I studied, I was listening and reading from the Gospel Library app on my phone in the King James Version. And then, as you may have noticed, when I study or when I read for our episodes, I'm usually most often studying from a Christian Standard Bible or the Christian Standard Version. And one of the things that I liked as I looked at both of those was just the difference in a few of the words. The main word I noticed was murmuring. Um, in my in the Christian Standard Version, they use a f- couple other words that maybe I identified with a little more. <laughs> I never murmur, but I do grumble and complain. And that is what the Israelites did. The people grumbled to Moses and they complained and they grumbled again. And I don't know what it was about those words that kind of just maybe resonated a little bit with me. And I thought, you know, as we look at this question of how can I draw more power from prophetic leadership, um, I tend to be someone that murmurs and grumbles maybe a little bit more. And I think that in our relationship with me and Zach, as as we've talked about many things, um, and I think it's been helpful for us as I murmur and grumble a little bit more. I think Zach is a little less prone to murmur and grumble. But what's neat is that we both are open-minded and listen to, Zach listens to my murmurs and grumbles and he thinks about them and he, and I listen to what he says. And so my point is, is that it's okay to feel those things. We don't have to feel guilt for having complaints or murmuring because we're human and that's okay. But um, I think it can also be so helpful to be remember to be open-minded about the different perspectives that different people have because we can learn and grow from them together. And sometimes um, I think in the scope of things, there were some complaints from the Israelites, but it's not that that's all they did. They had many ups and downs in between, and that's me reading into the situation, but I think that's okay for these scripture stories like these. Um, we don't have to be perfect, and if we can keep an open mind between these two things of maybe even saying that we're criticizing or that we're having being too optimistic, maybe those would be the far ends of the spectrum. Um, I think keeping an open mind and remembering that... Um, it's important for us to hear and work together in all ends of that spectrum. Yeah, well, I like that. I think the balance to that is um, there is always opportunity and encouragement in our faith to question. Um, and we are, as you've said really well, we're human, which means that questioning often comes with doubts, sometimes complaints or worries. But just like with the, the point you were making about belief, I think uh, there is a choice of attitude when we approach difficult situations. It was ironic to me that in the story of the manna that the Israelites received two sets of instructions. One, for six days out of the week, they were to gather only enough manna for one day. 
they didn't obey that. Many of them didn't. And so they gathered more than enough. And the second day, that manna they had gathered bread worms and was rotten and Moses was angry with them. Well, the other bit of instruction they were given was on the day before the Sabbath to gather two days worth of manna and that the Lord would preserve it and hold it over. And there were some that didn't listen to that. And they went out on the Sabbath because they didn't want to gather two days worth. And there wasn't manna on the Sabbath. And it was ironic to me that no matter what the instruction was, there was complaint, there was pushback, and there was grumbling, which to me indicates it's not a problem with the commandment or the instruction. This is something that was originating, at least in this experience, in the, in the minds or in the attitudes uh, of the Israelites as they approached that, that instruction. And so um, I think this point that you're making of balance uh, is wonderful, to allow ourselves the humanity to have questions and to have worries or doubts or wonders or, uh, or complaints, but to choose uh, an optimistic or to choose a, a positive assumption of those that are leading us, I think can help us to be able to make space for both of those. Yeah. And not even sometimes it's not even choosing the more positive perspective. It's realizing that there is a positive mm-hmm. perspective to many sides of the coin. Yeah. Well, the final point I wanted to make was from my favorite story in this account uh, in the very end of chapter 17 there's this final miracle tacked right on the end. It's a little bit of different, a different feel than the others. In this one, uh, the Amalekites come to battle against the Israelites. And Moses gives Joshua, it's the first instance we hear of Joshua, gives Joshua the instruction to go out uh, and to gather the Israelites into armies and to wage this, fight this battle. And Moses tells Joshua, I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. And then in verse 11, it says, When Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were very heavy. And so Aaron and Hur took a stone and put it under him, and he sat thereon, and they stayed up his hands, the one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And because of that, Israel prevailed, and they title the place Jehovah Nisi, which is the Lord is my banner. I love this illustration of a prophet who cares about these people that the Lord has given him stewardship over. And so he decides that in his role as prophet, he is going to go and hold up the rod of God, this symbol of the authority and power that God has given him. He's going to hold it up so that his people will benefit from it. However, he is a mortal man, which means holding up that power indefinitely is impossible to him. And so he stands there and he holds up this rod and he notices that as his hands go down, the Israelites start to lose. And so maybe he he gathers some more strength and he holds it up harder. Uh, But it just is not, it's an untenable situation for a prophet to stand alone. And so Aaron and Hur, seeing the need, rushed to Moses' side, and they, we would use the word, sustain him. They hold up their hands to support his. And I have always envisioned when I raise my hand in general conference or state conference or ward conference to sustain a leader, or when someone is called uh, to be you know, a leader of my children in primary or a leader in young women's, when I raise my hand, I'm not just saying I agree or I like this person or I think this is a good idea. It's not a vote. It is me indicating my willingness to sustain them. 
And I wonder what could happen to us individually, what does happen to us individually, and what could happen to us collectively as a church if we were more willing to set aside uh, some of the negative perspectives or some of the concerns that we might have and instead focus greater attention and effort on sustaining those that are called to lead us. Not to forget uh, the human side and the wrestles that we might have, but if we were to shift our attention and our focus to sustaining leaders, uh, what power and benefit might we draw for our own lives? What strength might those leaders receive to be able to, to lead? And what good might be done for the rest of the church? And so that's the image that stays in my mind. Now, I have a small little connect idea. If you're studying this with other people this week, again, if you're listening to this before General Conference or after General Conference, uh, we are going to have the words of inspired church leaders available to us. I think it would be a great study to take this scripture block and tie it together in some way with the recent General Conference uh, and maybe to look at some ways that we can maybe better draw power um, from the words of those that are called to teach and lead us. And we really hope that you have a great General Conference weekend and a great Easter coming up. We are actually going to be taking Easter week off from recording a new episode, so we will not have a new episode next week, but we'll continue up with our study the following the weeks to follow. We do have a couple past episodes that you could go back and find that we have done for Easter, but the last couple years we um, decided that usually Easter's been around conference. It's a great time for us to be quiet so that you have a chance to listen to conference, be inspired, and study more about the Savior's life in, in different ways. But we are looking forward to coming back and um, start starting up again in Exodus 18. So happy Easter, happy conference weekend. We'll see you soon.